else uh, comes in, um, they can just step in where they're at. So uh, last week we we uh, finished up Romans chapter 7. We were able to get through the whole thing. Uh, tonight we're going to be kicking off Romans chapter 8, uh, hoping to be able to get through uh, much of this chapter, and there are a few things that we will cover in this chapter uh, that I don't really have the time this evening to unpack fully. Uh, and so, when we meet again, um, I'm going to put put a couple of things together for you uh, for when we meet again. Uh, before we get started here tonight, I'm going to just open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into Romans Romans eight um, and just kind of go from there. So, Heavenly Father. Uh, we come, uh, we come to you this evening, and uh, Lord, we just thank you for uh, this this book in the Bible, uh, Romans. Lord, we we thank you that uh, you used the Holy Spirit to inspire Paul to write the things that he did. And Lord, over the first seven chapters, we've learned so many different things of your Word. We've learned uh, how much we have a need for you, uh, how much. Um, we truly are sinners, God, in need of saving grace. And, and tonight, Lord, I, I hope um, that not only is there a challenge for us, but that we are encouraged as your children, uh, that, we, that we would understand better tonight that uh, for those of us who are in your family, there is no condemnation upon our life for our past life, our old man, uh, and then even the, the sin uh, that could be present in our lives now, Lord. And so we ask uh, that you would uh, use the Holy Spirit tonight as we study out this portion of Scripture, that it would bring glory to you as we learn and meditate upon the things that we, uh, we read and we hear tonight, and that as questions do arise through this chapter, Lord, that there would be uh, clarity uh, for us as we walk away, that we would uh, not have lingering questions, uh, but that, Lord, you... Uh, would minister to us through uh, tonight. And I just ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Well, before we dive into chapter 8 tonight, uh, at the end of last week, I asked you two questions uh, to think about over the course of the week. Um, I know some of you were not able to be here last week, and so uh, if you can uh, think quickly upon your feet, I'm okay with you throwing out an answer. Uh, but I asked last week, uh, what was something that convicted or challenged you in chapter 7? And then what was something that brought you comfort from chapter 7? Um, and I asked you to kind of think about it throughout the week. What was something that convicted you or challenged you? And then what was something that comforted you in chapter 7? So who wants to go first? Not all jump at the same time. All right, I'll share. I'll, I'll start us out, and maybe it'll jog some of your memories and your thoughts. So one of the things that um, one of the things that challenged me was um, the things that I struggle with in my own life, uh, and how oftentimes uh, because I know the right answer. Um, I will just try to press forward on my own without pressing into Christ. Anybody else ever find themselves in that place? 
That was, that was the challenge. The, the conviction for me was the pressing into the Lord. But on the flip side of that, what was the thing that brought me the most comfort? What Paul said at the very end. Like, who is it that's going to rescue me? Like, he had come to the end of himself. He was ready. He was ready for Christ uh, to take him. And he had great comfort in that. Uh, and I'm excited about what Paul says to us today in Romans chapter 8. Uh, but is there anyone else who wants to What was something that challenged uh, or convicted you or comforted you? Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's good. A challenge to um, allow for the Holy Spirit uh, to produce godly fruit in our lives as we um, spend time with Him, as we as we press in uh, to the Lord. Anybody else before we move forward? Well, if you would look with me at verse number one of chapter chapter number eight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful way to start chapter 8 after hearing chapter 7. Would you agree with that? What a wonderful... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. You know, the, the simple declaration here by Paul of no condemnation comes to those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and if you are an underliner in your Bible, I would, if it, were, if it were you, I would encourage you to underline no condemnation and in Christ Jesus. Those two phrases, no condemnation and in Christ Jesus. Uh, God the Father does not condemn Jesus, so neither can the Father condemn those who are in his son are in Christ Jesus, meaning that you and I cannot be condemned or we, we, won't, um, we won't be condemned in the future. Uh, but Paul says, therefore, therefore, there is no condemnation. And it's important that we notice the therefore. When I was in Bible college, our professors used to tell us whenever we see the word therefore in scripture, we must ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? And for us as believers, it means that what Paul is about to say comes from a logical argument. Comes from a logical argument. It's as if Paul can say, I can prove that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is what, this is what he goes on to prove. If you are one with Christ and he is your head, you cannot be condemned. And we're going to begin to walk through this all throughout the chapter. Uh, think with me for a moment, and hopefully this will help you to understand. You cannot acquit the head of the body, but then condemn the hand. Why? Because they are one. You can't drown the foot of a body while the head is still above water. Why? Because they're connected together. 
You can't have one without the other. So us as Christians are joined to Christ, and then that means the verdict for us is no condemnation. None whatsoever. And that phrase in Christ uh, that I told you, to, if I was you, to underline um, in Christ Jesus, that phrase imports that there is a spiritual union between Christ and the believer, between us. And it's sometimes expressed by Christ being in us or here, us being in Christ. And it's typically the two phrases that we would see throughout the New Testament, typically following uh, the Gospels. So Christ being in the believer. So someone tell me how Christ is inside of the believer. I'm sorry? Yes. Christ is inside of the believer because of the Holy Spirit, and believers are in Christ by faith. And so the verdict to the Christian is not less condemnation at the end. It is no condemnation, none whatsoever. You know, I, I have heard in the many years of being in, in ministry in different capacities, I've heard many people believe uh, and think uh, that their standing is improved because of, of salvation. Like that all of a sudden I was, I was over here and now I've bumped up a couple of notches uh, because of salvation. But our standing has not been improved. It's been completely transformed. It's not even the same. It's changed to a status of no condemnation, none whatsoever because we are in Christ Jesus. But, but there's something that we have to also think about. I don't know about you, but when I study scripture and I see something in scripture that talks uh, about my, my position in, in Jesus Christ as a part of his family, my mind automatically runs to the flip side as well. Not, not just that one thing, but my, my mind always thinks about the opposite. What about the people that are not in Christ? What about them? What does the Bible say about them? And so the one who is not in Jesus Christ has what? Condemnation. The one who is not in Christ has condemnation. And for us as believers, it is not a pleasant task at all uh, to have conversations or, or to speak of the matter of condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. But who are we just to think about who are we that we should ask God for pleasant tasks who are we who are we that we should ask God for pleasant tasks I mean what God has given to us in scripture is is the sum and and really in large part the substance of what the servants of God are to testify to uh, to the people if they are not in Christ Jesus. And if they are walking after the flesh, uh, you have not escaped condemnation if you're not in Christ. And uh, the, the, the place of confidence and peace that is for those that are in Christ Jesus only comes after confusion and conflict in the life. Did you guys, did, did you guys catch that? Did you guys catch what I said? Confidence and peace in my relationship with Jesus Christ only comes after, after confusion about what to do, where to go, and, and then after conflict 
which led to my salvation. And because of my salvation, I now have confidence in Christ and I now have peace through Jesus Christ about where I'm going and why I'm going there. And we see that conflict uh, occur, right, in the last chapter, in chapter 7. And so Paul is now looking to Jesus at the beginning of this chapter. And, and he finds where he stands in Christ. But this chapter, in my opinion, is more than just an answer to the previous chapter. It's more than that. Uh, because it ties together every single thought from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the end of, of this chapter. It ties together everything. And you begin to see this shift as we go into to next week, into chapter number 9. But chapter 8 begins with no condemnation. And as you begin to walk through this, you're going to see that it talks about no separation. And in between, there is no defeat in that as a, as a, as a believer. And yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Romans was written about 20 years after Paul went into ministry. So you're talking probably six, between 68 and maybe 78 A.D. Sure. Um, I, I, I would say that probably from the beginning of James, James's teachings, because uh, um, for those of you who missed this a couple of weeks back, James was the first written book of the New Testament. James was written prior to the Gospels being written. And James, if you guys remember back from week one of our, our series in Roots, uh, James 1, we talked about how James... Uh, was the head of the church at Jerusalem, but he was also the head of the Jerusalem council um, in the book of Acts. And so a lot of the things that James was writing and saying are actually things that line with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus was saying. And so he brought out everything in a different light, and then the other apostles learned from him, but also took pieces from him and, and put it. So I would say that Paul probably used that language because of James. I would probably say, yeah, absolutely. So we have to think, right? So the, the Holy Spirit was talked about in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus conveyed to the people what the Holy Spirit was going to do for them when, when he was gone. And so from, right, from in between Acts 1 and Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends, Pentecost occurs. Um, I, would, I would say that the Holy Spirit's work um, was probably maybe from our finite mind an overwhelming task at that moment the way that we would have to process it because the holy spirit uh, if you think the holy spirit would work in the same way in which christ worked here on the earth uh being in, in um, omnipresent um and and because he dwells within the believer and so the the holy spirit would be the one that reminds of that truth so i would say that the whole the work of the holy spirit in in the believer themselves yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, do you guys, did you guys catch that? Okay. Now, the, 
this chapter starts out with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And then there's no defeat in between uh, the, the beginning and the end of this chapter. Now, I, I want to just kind of throw something out there, not to confuse you, uh, but there are some versions of the Bible, and I'm not sure if you have one of the versions, but there are some versions of the Bible that at the end, uh, where it says that in Christ Jesus, it adds to that verse that says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There are some versions that add to verse number one. Now, let me just explain to you for a moment those words, um, if your version of the Bible has them, those words were not found in the earliest ancient manuscripts of the book of Romans, and they do not agree with the flow of Paul's context here in what he's, a say, he's saying and or about to say. Uh, most theologians uh, believe and agree uh, that they were added by a copyist. Um, they were added by the one who was essentially putting the text into English um, to either help Paul uh, by adding to what he says in a few verses, or it was just an error on human part. So many modern versions do not retain that added portion, uh, but there are still some modern versions that have it added in there. So if you do have it, just wanted to let you know uh, the reason why it didn't get read is because it's not uh, really, really to be a part. Um, and so while it is true that there, uh, those who are in Christ Jesus should not and do not consistently walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, that was not a condition of their status of no condemnation. And so our position in Jesus Christ is the reason for our, our standing of no condemnation, meaning that we receive um, uh, a glorious declaration standing in the courts of God. And we received it through, um, through Christ, even though we deserve condemnation, but we don't, receive, we don't receive that from God. And we receive that standing because Christ bore that condemnation on the cross uh, for us as he is condemned no more. That means we who are in him cannot be uh, condemned. But look now, uh, because Paul begins to, to walk into a contrast between the life uh, that is, is in the spirit and the life that is in the flesh. Uh, verse 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul is saying that the law of sin and death was a strong and seemingly absolute law. Uh, we, we sin, or every sin that we commit in every cemetery uh, around the globe proves that the law of sin and death is strong and it's absolute because everybody is going to die. Everyone is destined to die. But the law of the spirit of life that is found in Christ is stronger than the law of sin and death. It's stronger still. And the law of the spirit, it frees the believer uh, from the law of sin and death, meaning that we are free from the law of sin. Though he um, and, and, and she and I and you inevitably will still sin, I, please, please note this, 
The Christian does not have to sin. Did you guys catch that? The Christian does not have to sin any longer. We do not have to choose to sin because we've been freed from sin's dominion, yet we still will choose to sin. But we don't have to. We're not required any longer. We are free from the law of death, and death no longer has any power against the believer. So if we, if we read verse number one of this chapter over, we are told that we're free from the guilt of sin. We're free from the guilt of sin. Verse number two then tells us that we're free from the power of sin. And Paul says, for what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh. That it was weak. And so the law could do many things. It could guide the believer. It could teach the believer. It could tell us about God's character, but it could not give energy to our flesh. It could give us the standard, but it couldn't give us the power to please God. And so the law is weak because it speaks to the flesh of man. It's weak. It comes to fleshly men, and it speaks to them as fleshly men. But the work of the Spirit on the opposite side of that, it transforms the life. Uh, the lives of of the Christian by the crucifixion of the old man and it imparts the new man to you, uh, which is a principle that is way higher uh, than the flesh. And so the law could not defeat sin. Um, it could only detect sin. It can't defeat it, but it detects it. And so only Jesus can defeat sin. Only Jesus. And he did that through the work on the cross, Correct. Right. And so in order to defeat sin in the life of a believer, Jesus had to identify with those of us bound by it. And that's why he, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, the likeness. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul carefully chose these exact words. And I, I need to help us understand, uh, understand this. Paul indicated to us that Jesus was not sinful flesh but he identified with it entirely like we we could not say today when reading our bible that jesus came in sinful flesh because jesus was sinless so he didn't come in sinful flesh we can't say that jesus came in the likeness of flesh because jesus was human but not like a human he's not like a human in the fact that he did not sin but Paul says that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh because although he was human, he was not a sinful human in and of himself. And so he came and it said that when he came, he condemned sin in the flesh. When he was here in his fleshly body, he condemned sin. Sin was condemned by Christ. Why? Because he bore that condemnation on the cross. And so since we are in Christ, the condemnation that we truly deserve uh, passes over us. And because Jesus fulfilled uh, the righteous requirements of the law, and, be, and because we are in Christ, we fulfill the law. Now, before you jump all over me and be like, what did you just say? Because Jesus came and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, because we are in Christ, we fulfill the law. The law is fulfilled in us in regards to obedience because Jesus' righteousness has been given to us through his shed blood from the moment of salvation. 
And so the law is, is fulfilled inside of you and I in regards to punishment because the punishment demanded by the law was already poured out on Jesus Christ. It was already poured out on him when he was beaten and when he was crucified, when he was dead and buried, and then when he rose again. And so Paul did not say that the human fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. He said that Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, and because of that, it is fulfilled in us as well. You guys, you guys tracking with me so far? I know it's a, it's a mouthful here at the beginning. I know it's a mouthful. It is not fulfilled by us. It is fulfilled in us. It's fulfilled. Simply put it this way. Jesus was our substitute. Jesus was our substitute. Propitiation. That was what, that, like it was going to come out of me and I was substitute. Substitute. Jesus was treated um, as a sinner so that you and I could be treated as righteous. That's what Paul is trying to say. Uh, the people who enjoy that are those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And their life is marked by obedience to the Holy Spirit, not obedience to the flesh. And so God wants the spirit in us to rule over our flesh. And when, when we, yeah, I've been having like conversation after conversation with people uh, over the last several weeks, either people that have come in to uh, have a counseling appointment or people that have stopped after church and had a conversation with me. And it, it's hard for people um, at times to see that when we allow the flesh to reign over the spirit in us, we find ourselves bound by sinful patterns and, and desperation. And that was the same thing that marked the life of Paul back in Romans chapter 7. That when we allow our sinful flesh to reign in our lives, uh, we're bound to continue on in the way that we've always continued on. Uh, our walk or, or the pattern of this life um, must be according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And so to walk, um, to walk in the Spirit um, means that the course and the direction and the progress of one's life is constantly led by the Spirit himself. Constantly led by the Spirit himself. And, and the thing that, that a lot of Christians struggle with is the fact that the walking in the Spirit is a continued motion. It doesn't stop. And when it stops, what happens? When we stop walking in the Spirit, what happens in our life? Yes, sin, sin. And so the, the continued motion of walking in the Spirit is what brings about greater sanctification in the life of the believer. And the greater sanctification brings about not a greater standing with Christ, because that can't change, but it brings about showing people what Christ can do in your life. Someone, uh, someone asked me to go and, and um, take a class with them when we were in college, and I had to, I had to study out uh, the doctrine of sanctification. I, I spent 12 weeks studying scripture uh, on just the topic of sanctification alone. And at the end of that process, 
um, I told my wife there were a lot of things that I learned, but one of the things that, that I gleaned from Scripture, uh, and, um, and I will never forget, um, to be sanctified means to be set apart for holy use. You guys understand that? I've said it to us before as a church. To be sanctified means to be set apart for holy use. Not just to be set apart, but to be set apart for holy use. One of the things that we oftentimes miss in Scripture is that our sanctification process is more for other people than it is for ourselves. Did you guys catch that? We miss it all, all, all a lot. Our sanctification is more for other people than it is for ourselves. Well, how do you mean that, Pastor? Well, sanctification, to be set apart for holy use. For holy use. Ephesians 2, most of the time we run to 8 and 9, but we skip verse number 10. God has ordained, preordained good works in the life of a believer that was set before you were even saved. And so there are things that you are to set out to do, holy uses in which God has already called you to do before you've even gotten there. And so when I am sanctified to a greater degree, when God allows for something to be chiseled out of me that was not chiseled out of me a year ago or five years ago, it yes, it helps me, it benefits me in my walk, but really it's for the benefit of other people because they've seen a difference in you, because they've seen a change in you, because there's something about you that's going to draw them closer to God. Sanctification, to be set apart for holy use for the benefit of other people, for the glorification of God, sanctification. So, to be sanctified, to be walking in the Spirit, is a continued motion, continued motion. So look with me now at verse number five, because how many of you would be willing uh, to raise your hand um, and say, there have been different seasons of my life where I have tried to please God in my flesh, and it didn't work? It just didn't work, right? So look, look at what Paul says about why. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Any, anybody recognize some of these things from the book of James? That means all of you guys have been reading it, right? For the mind, verse 7, that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul, right here, gives an easy way for us to determine if we are walking in the Spirit or walking in the flesh, to, to simply see where our mind is set. Where is my mind set? Uh, the mind is the strategic battleground where the flesh and the spirit are constantly waging war against each other. And we shouldn't think, we should not think that those who set their mind on things of the flesh are only notorious sinners. Did you guys catch that? We should not think that only only notorious sinners set their minds on things of the flesh. That would be very pharisaical 
for us to think that way. There may be great Christians, there may be noble and honorable Christians and people who have great intentions that set their things on fleshly things. Would you guys agree with that? Now, Peter meant well, and I love, I love this, how, how Jesus handles this situation. But Peter meant well, if you guys remember back uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, Peter told Jesus that he should avoid the cross. Do you guys remember that from the Gospel of Matthew? But what did Jesus say in return? He said, you're not mindful of the things of God, you are mindful of the things of man. Man, that's strong words coming from Jesus himself. But when we set our mind on the things of the flesh, when we become carnally minded, we bring death into our lives. We bring death into our lives. And so in order to bring peace in life, what do we have to do? Yes, walk in the Spirit, absolutely. We must guard ourselves against a false spirituality, though. Like, we must see that Paul means uh, the flesh in, in so far as it is an instrument in our rebellion against God, uh, but he's not talking about our, our normal physical or uh, emotional needs uh, that we may think about. Why? Because uh, they turn to sinful gratification in those needs when we're walking in the flesh. But uh, physical and, and emotional needs are not bad in and of themselves, but we have a tendency to twist and pervert them, and that's when they turn bad. That's when they're used, right? What did he say? As weapons of destruction. So Paul said, the mind is hostile towards God. Some of, it, some of you may have it where it says they're the carnal mind. Um, the, the flesh battles against God because it does not want to be crucified and it does not want to surrender to Jesus Christ. It, it does not want to live out Galatians 5.24 that says those who have Christ have crucified the flesh and with it its passions and desires. And so the, the battle for the believer is to tame the flesh. It is to tame the flesh. Uh, the law is powerless uh, to that, but Paul did not say that the carnal mind, and this is something very, very important. He did not say that the carnal mind or the fleshly mind was at enmity with God. Or it was, he, he, he said it something very much stronger than that. He said the carnal mind is enmity. It is enmity with God. Meaning that well, we can try to do well in this life without being subject to the law itself. And we may hope to put God in debt by us doing some good works and, and thinking that God owes us, but it doesn't work. It does not work. In the flesh, we cannot please God even if the flesh does religious things that are admired by God. It, it does nothing. Perhaps no one text in all of Scripture more completely sets forth the hideous, lost state of man after the flesh, except for this one right here. Thinking that we can do all of it by our own strength. But Paul says Christians should be empowered to live by the Holy Spirit. We should be empowered to live. Look at verse number 9. He says, you, 
talking to the believer, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Yes. Amen. The Holy Spirit is given to each believer. And please do not miss this. There is some pretty messed up theology that's taught out in our culture right now and in certain denominations. But the Holy Spirit is given to each believer when they are born again. You guys got that? From the moment of salvation, you are given the Holy Spirit. And every Christian has within themselves a principle that is higher and more powerful than your flesh. That's what he's saying. You've been given the Spirit. You've been given the Spirit. So now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. He is not Christ's. And so that means that every believer has the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a misnomer to, defi- to d- divide Christians among spirit-filled and non-spirit-filled. Did you guys catch that? It is a, it is a misnomer to divide Christians between spirit-filled and non-spirit-filled. If a person is not filled with the Holy Spirit, they're not a Christian at all. They're not a Christian at all. According to Scripture, we see that. We see that many miss out, though, please hear me out, many miss out on living the Christian life in constant fullness of the Spirit because they are not constantly being filled with the Spirit as Paul commanded in Ephesians chapter 5, to be filled with the Spirit. They have no experience of what Jesus spoke about when he described in John chapter 7 about rivers of living water flowing from the believer. And so I, I have a question then for us, and, and it's okay if you're like, I, I'm not quite sure, that's all right. But how does one know that they have the Spirit? Yes, but could you make it a little more tangible? Because yes, fruit is produced in the life of the believer. Yep, and gentleness. Yeah. Yes, there, there's a desire in one's life to honor God by the way that we live. And as we honor God, those fruits are produced in us as we abide in those truths. So the Holy Spirit is leading us to be more like Christ. He's leading us uh, to, to a greater work in the life of the individual so that God can be glorified on a greater, a greater scale or greater capacity. But in that, though, there, and, and I use this term cautiously, very cautiously, but there, in, in, in being led by the Spirit, there is an obligation for the believer to live in the Spirit. There's an obligation. So look now at verse number 12, and hopefully I'll explain this to you. 
But verse number 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But, oh, sorry. Uh, so then, brothers, verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the, the flesh gave us nothing good. So we, we have no obligation to oblige or, or pamper the flesh that's inside of us. Our, our debt is to the Lord, not to the flesh. Our debt is to God. And Paul constantly reminded us that living after the flesh always ends in death. It always brings death into the body. And so we need that. How many of you need that reminder often? Sinfulness brings death. Sinfulness brings death. Why? Because oftentimes we're deceived into thinking that the flesh offers life. That the flesh offers life. And so when we put to death the deeds of the body, we must do it by the power of the Spirit within us. By the Spirit within us. Otherwise, we become like the Pharisees. We become spiritually prideful. And Paul tells us that not only are we saved by the work of the Spirit, but we also must walk in the Spirit if we want to grow and pursue holiness in the Lord. You know, Paul wrote uh, to the church at Galatia, and, and the Galatians were a group of people, a church that believed that they could begin in the Spirit, but that they would be able to eventually find spiritual perfection in the flesh. That was the church at Galatia, in a nutshell. And Paul is, is very much so uh, tackled the fruit of the Spirit near the end of the book of Galatians to attempt to help that church to understand we have to walk with the Spirit. If you've not read Galatians chapter 5 recently, I would encourage you to go back and read it. I would encourage you to read Galatians chapter 5. He says that we are to walk with the Spirit. And when he said to walk with the Spirit, it, it was like marching orders to stand in, in every step is the same step for you and the Holy Spirit in your life. How many of you have ever been to a parade or you've, been to, you've seen anything done with the military and you see these beautiful like, um, like mass amounts of men and women in their uniforms and they're marching and every single step is identical and it's just like a well-oiled machine. You guys ever seen that? It's a beautiful picture, is it not? That's exactly what Paul was talking about when he said to walk in step or to walk with the Spirit. It, it was a, an order that would have been given to a soldier because he saw the Roman soldiers every day marching step by step and step by step, and they were always uniformed. Never one faster or slower than the other. Same, left foot at the same time, right foot at the same time, every single step. And so for the Christian to walk in the Spirit means I'm in step all the time with the Spirit. I'm in step. So look, though, because living in the Spirit begins to show that, that there is uh, the one who lives for God. When I live in the Spirit, I'm displaying that I am a child of God. So look at verse 14. Paul says... Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
Abba, Father. You know, it's only fitting um, that the sons of God should be led by the Spirit of God. Would you guys agree with that? (laughs) It's only fitting. Um, However, we should not think that being led by the Spirit is a precondition uh, to being a son of God. Um, and instead, we, we become sons first, and then the Spirit of God le- leads us from there. Uh, Paul did not say, as many as go to church are the sons of God. That's not what he said. He, he didn't say, as many as read their Bible are the sons of God. As many as are patriotic Americans are the sons of God. As many as take communion are the sons of God. No, he said, as many are led by the Spirit. As many are led by the Spirit. And in this text, the test for sonship is whether or not a person is led by the Spirit of God. And so someone tell me the ways that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit leads us. Mm, Be more specific than that. What are the two main things that Jesus said the Holy Spirit does? He does comfort. Yes, the Holy Spirit guides us in all truth and reminds us of all truth. Were the two main things that Jesus said the Spirit does. Now, he did tell the disciples that that he is sending a comforter, which was the, the Holy Spirit. But there's two main ways in which he leads us, by reminding us of truth and guiding us. If you go back and read John 14 and John 16, that's where Jesus made both of those statements. Okay? Now, Jesus is saying that because of the reminder of truth and the guiding in all truth, that he is drawing us closer to the Father through that. He's showing us a deeper and greater love for God as we cooperate with that leading, as we cooperate. So if you're a note taker, if you're a note taker, I want you to write down the word cooperate and then hyphen with the Spirit. Cooperate hyphen with the Spirit. So then someone throw this out, uh, throw out an answer to this question. If we know that the Holy Spirit guides us in truth and reminds us uh, of truth, then where do you think he leads you to? Sorry? Truth. He leads you to truth. And where is truth found? I'm sorry? Yes. Right here. Right here. Right here. Do you know living at, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. The living as a child of God means that we have an intimate 
and, and joy-filled relationship with God. And it's not like bondage and fear um, is demonstrated by the law. It's joy-filled and it's intimate. Um, it's personal. And a child of God in a relationship with God is so close, Paul said, that we can cry out to him, Dad. It's so close we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. Daddy, Daddy, I'm crying out to my dad. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's easy for us to think about uh, Jesus relating to the Father with joyful confidence, but we, we may at times think we're disqualified to think in those terms um, about God. But we have to remember that we are in Christ as a believer. We have the privilege of relating to the Father as Christ relates to the Father. We have that privilege now as one of his children. Do you know in, in the Roman world where Paul was at, the first century church, um, an adopted son um, in that day and age, according to their law, was a son that was deliberately chosen by an adopted father to perpetuate his name and to inherit his estate, or his estate. And so that adopted son had no inferior status than a son that was born in an ordinary or natural way to that family. And so when a child was adopted in that day and age under Roman adoption, the life and the standing of the adoption completely changed that child meaning that the adopted son lost all of his rights to his old family and he gained all brand new rights. That was how the Roman adoption system worked in Paul's day, meaning that everything of his old life was completely wiped out with all his debts canceled and there was nothing from his past that was counted against him anymore once he was adopted in that life. And it was the example set to the Christian to say that there will be evidence that we are the children of God, and it will, be it will be because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So look now at verse 16, because this is important for us. It says that the Spirit himself will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so Paul plainly says that those who are God's children born again by the Spirit of God know their status why? Because the Holy Spirit testifies to the Spirit within them. He says, you're one of God's. And it's not to say that there are not those who wrongly think or assume that they are God's children apart from the Spirit's testimony. You know, there are quick Christians that I have met whose heads are so foggy from spiritual attack, so messed up because of spiritual attack that they begin to believe the lie that they are not God's children at all. Maybe you've been in that place. You've, you've begun to believe the lie. Maybe you've been in the place in the past where you were like, am I even truly saved? Am I really one of God's children? But the witness of the Spirit is always there. The witness of the Spirit. You know, we don't ever truly have to wonder if we are Christians or not. If we have worked out our salvation with fear and trembling, we don't have to worry anymore. We don't. God's children know who they are as God's children. They know that. In, in the book of Deuteronomy, Jewish law stated that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything had to be established. Do you know there are two witnesses to our salvation? 
our own witness and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Two witnesses. And so there are benefits to being a part of God's family, but there's also a responsibility in that. There's a re- Look at verse 17. And, and please uh, catch this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer, I want you to highlight that word in your Bible, suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Because we are in Christ, we have the privilege of relating to the Father as Jesus does. Therefore, we are heirs of God and we are joint heirs with Christ. Being a child of God means that we have an inheritance, uh, something that is waiting. Um, if you guys if you guys know the story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, the rich young ruler, do you guys remember what he asked Jesus? Sorry? Yes. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What must I do? Do you guys remember what, what Jesus said in return? Right. Right. The, the, the rich young ruler missed the point because inheritance is not a matter of doing, it was a matter of being. He missed it. Because it wasn't about doing, it was about being in the right family is where the inheritance comes from. And so because we are in Christ, we are also called, though, and this is the part that a lot of people want to miss. Because we are in the family of Christ, we are called to share in his sufferings. We're called to share in his sufferings. Meaning that God's children are not immune from trials or tribulations. We're not. In fact, our sharing in present suffering is a condition of our future glorification when we get to heaven. And as far as God is concerned, it's all a part of the same package of sonship. In order to be one of his children, no matter how much our flesh may want to have the inheritance and the glory without the suffering, suffering will always come in this life. Uh, The life in the spirit makes us able, though, to endure that suffering. Look at what he says in, in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will, be re- that will be revealed to us. The glory that will be revealed to us. You know, Paul um, was not ignorant and Paul was not blind to the suffering uh, of human existence. He wasn't. You know, he experienced more suffering than most of the people in the Bible and a lot more than many of us will ever suffer today uh, in this life. And yet he still considered the, the future glory at the end to far outweigh the suffering that he was going through. He, he said it, it outweighs it. There's, it's not even close. And yet without a heavenly hope, Paul considered the Christian life foolish and tragic at the same time. If I don't have any hope in heaven, then what we're doing is tragic. It's foolish. That's what he said to the church at Corinth. And yet, in, a, in light of eternity, in light of, of everything else, it is the wisest and best choice that anybody could make to follow Christ. You know, the coming glory does not only, it's not only going to be revealed to us, but it will be revealed in us as well. You know, God put his glory into the believer from the moment of salvation, and in heaven, that glory will simply be revealed. 
meaning that it's not going to be created glory. That's already been, the glory of God has already been created. It's just going to be revealed to us. And the implication is, is that it's already in existence. It's just not apparent right now. That's not apparent yet. So look, though, at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so Paul considers that creation itself is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And it's because the creation was subjected to futility. I mean, on the account of man's sinfulness, uh, creation is longing for everything to be made right, is what Paul is saying. And, and, and will benefit. The creation will benefit ultimately because of the redemption of man. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I love what Isaiah, Isaiah said. I went and was reading Isaiah chapter 11 where he says that at the redemption of man, there will be the redemption of creation. And that day he says the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And he goes on to say that the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf with the young lion and the fatling and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze and the young ones shall lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox and, and the nursing child will play in the cobra's hole, is what Isaiah said. And the weaned child will stick his hand in the viper's den and they shall not be hurt or destroyed. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. It'll be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Only God could subject creation in hope. Only God. And that was not ultimately the work of man or Satan, but the, the benefits, it benefits not only the children of God, but it benefits all of creation. The redemption of man benefits everything, but until that day, until that day, creation groans. Creation wants, I want for this to come to the end. You know, um, I... I'm an avid reader, and I read lots and lots and lots of books, um, and I was reading a book just recently, and uh, the book was all about what they call, um, and I'm going to use this term loosely, and and not going to have time to really kind of unpack the meaning of it, but they, I was reading a book that was all about what they called super Christian groups, super Christian groups, or, or groups of people in the Christian circle that had the super Christian mentality where they took this idea that the revealing of the Son of God um, is to say that all creation is waiting for their particular group of people um, to become the super spiritual Christians and be revealed to all of the world as being uh, the most powerfully uh, fashioned and most incredible group of people. And it was talking about different denominations and what they've said and, and how the Jehovah's Witness believed that they, there was only going to be 144,000 and they were going to be revealed as the, like, the super Christians. 
uh, you know, and things of that nature. So I'm reading this book, and I, I couldn't help but have this conversation with my wife. And, you know, there have been different seasons of my life where God has revealed to me personally. I'm just going to be kind of really, really blunt and really honest with you. Um, there have been different season of, seasons of my life where God has revealed to me where I've been super prideful in that season of life. And I've been super prideful in this season of life. And, and I know that every one of us as sinners deals with pride in, in some form or facet. But I could not help but think to myself, like that is the most purely egotistical fantasy that you could ever have in this life. And, um, but it, it's the reality for some people. It's the reality that, um, that there are certain groups of Christians that believe that they are going to be the super spiritual Christians. That's us. We're going to get all the things in the end. We're going to have the best places and, and the best positions within the kingdom of God because we were the super Christians, right? And, you know, my, my prayer oftentimes, not just for myself, but for, for Christians, the, the church at large, the universal church is that we would be um, Christians of humility. Christians of humility. Um, I and, and the reason why I'm, I'm kind of bringing this out and kind of putting a pause for a moment on studying is, you know, I, I follow closely uh, the things that are going on in our country and in our world. And um, one, because it helps me to be more pointed in my prayer life, but Two, um, I want to know what's going on, um, not because I want to be fearful, not because, you know, I, I'm a doomsday prepper or anything like, you know, all, all sorts of craziness, but I want to know. And um, I was watching the news station uh, a few days back, and they had someone on, and they were interviewing them in light of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and I, I, I addressed the church just a couple of weeks back. And they had this, they had this individual on um, who was a pastor and um, talking about the things that his church was doing, i.e. picketing and this, that, and the other thing. And, and he began to share some encounters that they had with non-believers. And he shared about just the, the way that they handled these situations. And, and I was thinking to myself, man, that the way that he was talking was so, it didn't display Christ at all. Um, it wasn't just like, I'm going to speak the truth to you. It was like, I'm going to browbeat you because you don't believe the same way that I do. And they showed some clips on the news station of some of the interactions, and I was just completely appalled. I was completely appalled, not, not just for the sake of the Christians, but I was appalled at how the word of God was handled, not not to speak truth, but I was appalled at, at, at how they used God's word as a weapon to demean life because someone believed differently than they did. And do I believe that we should speak and share truth? Yes, absolutely. And the moment that I don't have that stance, I would like, and I'm, I'm asking you as, as the church body, the moment that I don't step onto this platform and speak truth is the moment that I want you to ask me to leave. The moment that I want you to ask me to resign. I believe wholeheartedly in speaking the truth. But at the same time, I also believe in being grace-filled with people. I believe, in, I believe in embracing people where they are with the intention of providing hope through Christ. I can't change somebody. The Holy Spirit can. 
And so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But, but there at the same time, on the, on the flip side of that for the Christian, we have to wait with perseverance for the coming glory of God. We have to. Look at verse 23 and see what he says. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. Does anyone feel that? I groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for hope uh, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And who struggles with being patient, waiting for the glory of God to be revealed? You know, there... There is a, a point here in which Paul is saying that we have tasted the glory that is to come as the believer, but we're waiting for our adoption. Now, I want to hopefully kind of tie these two. We, in a sense, have already been adopted into the family of God. We saw that in, in verse 15. But there's also a sense in which we're waiting for the consummation of the end of the world, uh, for the adoption to happen, and that's the, re the redemption of man's body. But that it has not occurred. Now, God does not ignore our physical body in his plan of redemption. I mean, he says uh, his plan for this body is resurrection when the corruptible, right, when the sinful man must put on incorruption. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, and he goes on to say that the mortal man must put on immortality. And so the fulfillment of our redemption at the end is something that's still distant, but I use distant loosely as well, because I, I believe we are fast approaching um, a lot of things that were spoken about in the Bible, yet we hope for um, it in faith and we persevere trusting that God will continue to be faithful to his word and to the promised glory that will become our reality in the end and so there has to be an attitude um, of the follower of Christ who in the thick of battle is to not be dismayed but we continue to fight forward in whatever the difficulty is because we know the glory that will come in the end Amen. Like we we've got to we've got to have an attitude that in the thick of battle, we're going to fight forward. We're going to fight for. We're going to press in and not become dismayed. I I keep this bracelet here. Um, my my sister got it for me um, about eight months ago, and it's Joshua one nine. It says, be strong and courageous, and do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God goes with you wherever you go. And um, do, I, do I think that wearing this bracelet does, like, has some supernatural power over me? No, I don't. Uh, but I wear the bracelet 
Um, and though I know the verse, I wear it as a constant reminder to myself uh, that I have to keep fighting forward. I have to keep pressing forward. I have to keep going. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because God, Paul even says, and we're going to see in a moment, Paul even tells us that God helps us through the Spirit, and it's available right now to us. His help is available right now. Look at verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Amen to that. Right? For, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. If you underline or highlight in your Bible, I, I, would, I would encourage you to do that. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He intercedes according to the will of God. Do you know when we are weak and we don't know exactly what we should pray for, God himself through the Holy Spirit helps by making intercession for us. It, it helps for the Spirit and, and may include praying with, now I'm going to kind of throw something in here and don't panic. I mean, if you have questions, I'll address them afterwards. Um, you know, this helps from uh, from the Spirit um, in, in a way that they may, our, our groanings may include praying with the spiritual gift of tongues. Um, it, it is certainly, but not limited to praying in an unknown tongue. Now, before you panic, okay, um, I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that we are going to be a church that's going to start blabbling things out of our mouth. Uh, that would be f the farthest thing from what is biblical. Um, but I am saying that the gifts of the Spirit, as talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, are still active because our God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever according to His Word. And so those gifts um, have not changed. Um, and if you go back and study it, the gift of preaching and teaching has not changed. It's still active. Uh, the gift of healing has not changed. It still does occur. Does it always occur in the way that we want it to? No, because we're not God. But I'm saying is that the, the, the idea is simply of communication beyond our ability to express. The, the deep groanings that are talked about here within us cannot be articulated apart from the interceding work of the Holy Spirit. And so this, of course, is the purpose of the gift of tongues, to enable us to communicate with God in a manner that is not limited to our own knowledge or our own ability to articulate our heart before God. And so the purpose of tongues is not to prove that we are, quote-unquote, filled with the Spirit. 
okay? It's not to prove that we are some uh, especially spiritually gifted individual. That's not what it was there for. It was to connect with God for the edification of the saints. Paul even specifically stated that tongues was not to be used in church unless there was an interpretation that could be known to man. And so any church, any denomination, any event, any activity, any, anything at all uh, in which the, the spiritual gift of tongues is abused and there is no, no interpretation, and I'm going to take it a step further, no interpretation that aligns with Scripture um, is unbiblical. It is unbiblical. And we have to use great caution. Great caution. Uh, because the Holy Spirit's help was to intercede, and it was supposed to be perfect because he's the one who searches the hearts of man, and of those whom he helps, he is able to guide those prayers. And it says, and this is very important to us, according to the will of God. He intercedes according to the will of God. And so I'm going to take a pause break. Um, for those in this room, or those who will eventually listen to this, um, if you have ever thought and or said out of your mouth, God didn't answer my prayer, that's a lie. That is untrue. God always answers prayer. It's either yes, no, or not right now. Always. God always answers prayer. Yes, no, or not right now. Always. And so please, 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 when we are praying on behalf of ourselves, our spouses, our friends, other church members, our family, our children, whatever it is, um, we, we can still ask, we can still seek, we can still knock uh, and pound. We should pound the doors of heaven uh, with our prayers. Uh, but sometimes the will of God is no. Sometimes it's not right now. And sometimes it's yes. Yeah, go ahead. In our, in our humanness, we have a tendency to pray selfish prayers. Um, and then we don't understand why they didn't come to fruition. Could you imagine, I, I asked um, a, a buddy of mine the other day, um, he is uh, on the, the verge of proposing. Um, and uh, he's been dating this young lady. It was, it was two, two uh, teenagers. They're not teenagers anymore, but they came through our youth group and and he called me um, and was like, um, Josh, I need, I need some advice. Um, I believe that God um, is, is moving my relationship forward uh, with this individual. And um, I need to know um, some things. I need some help. I'm, I'm kind of scared. I'm kind of nervous. And, um, and I began to, uh, to talk with this individual through just various, uh, various different things, and um, and I told this individual, um, you know, don't don't jump in um, just because uh, you want to. Um, don't don't jump in uh, because you say, um, well, I've been praying. Well, what exactly have you been praying? What what exactly is it? Prayers that only benefit you. 
Is it prayers that only benefit your marriage? Is it prayers, what exactly have you been praying? How is it that you've been seeking the Lord? Why? Because one, marriage is very important and should never be taken lightly. Uh, but two, um, to set ourselves up successfully uh, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in, with our children when it comes to parenting, whatever it is, our prayers should be that that aligns with Scripture, that that aligns with the Word of God, not for the benefit of myself, but for the glorification of Christ. So, if I go to pray, what is my prayer? What is coming out of my mouth? Is it going to glorify Christ? Or is it going to benefit me before it glorifies Christ? I've, I had someone tell me just recently the reason why I still have cancer is because I didn't pray hard enough. And I got off the phone with that individual and I was talking to my wife and, and everything in me had to stop myself from being Josh from 10 years ago. And I said, you... Yeah, right? I... The most dangerous thing that we can do as Christians is to assume we know the prayer life or the faith of another person. Um, to make assumptions uh, about somebody else. Um... We, we walk a very, very dangerous line um, in, in the things that we say, especially when it comes to prayer. Uh, we, we have to rethink uh, about our prayer life. Uh, we have to rethink um, about what, what our present sufferings are, like Paul said. We have to rethink about the trials that God allows for us to walk through and how we endure through them. How we endure. What did James say? The endurance produces in us what? Something that we would lack nothing at all. Nothing at all. And so God's help is an enduring process. Uh, our promise, sorry, to us. Saying that he has the ability to work all things. All things for good. And to see us through to that glorification. And so look with me now so we can wrap up this chapter and you guys can get out of here he says in verse 28, um, and we know that those who uh, love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those, and, and real quick, I'm just going to kind of throw this out there. Um, I would just caution you against uh, running directly to this verse when someone comes to you saying that they just lost somebody or that they're struggling with something in their health. Uh, please, don't, please don't be that Christian that's like, well, everything works together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. Um, I just, I'm just throwing it out there to you, okay? Just not saying that we can't speak God's word. I would just use caution that you, you don't just run there first. Um, yes, yes, yes. Just, she said weep with those who weep, laugh with those who laugh. Yes, it, it just use, use caution. Use ca you can get there down the road, but just, just throwing it out there. Um, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So God's sovereignty and ability to manage every aspect of our lives is demonstrated in the fact that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Though we must face the sufferings of this present time, we will face the sufferings, but he will work together for good. So God is able to make even those sufferings that we are walking through today work together for our good and for his glory. He's able to do that. Someone, yeah, go ahead. Correct. Correct. So, and I, I was, I figured someone was going to ask. <laughs> so, um, for those of you who are in here who have been around church any length of time, the words election, the words predestination, uh, the word foreknew um, are words that scare people. Um, they're words that uh, you either take a really hard leaning this way or you take a really hard leaning this way uh, and then it causes much strife and contention and division in the church. And so I'm going to present to you that next time that we meet, um, I will have put together uh, some of my, uh, my theological thoughts like I did a couple weeks ago with baptism and, and the age of accountability. I'm going to put something together for us because I just don't have the time right now to unpack uh, predestination, um, election, what is the difference between that and the will of man. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hopefully uh, concisely uh, put some stuff together to help us to understand that um, in a better way in a better light. Does that sound fair? Sound fair? I know that doesn't answer your question. Okay. Okay, fine. So, uh, so the, the, the promise here is for those who love God in the biblical understanding of love and God manages the affairs of our life because we are called according to his purpose. And so the eternal chain of God working is seen in the connection between foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. And so God didn't begin a work to simply abandon in the midst of of their present suffering. But Paul is saying that God is the author of salvation and that that's he's the author of salvation from beginning to end. Like he doesn't just take a break somewhere in there. Like uh, Paul said it, it said it one of fantastic in the book of Philippians that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And so we are not to think that God can take action only when we graciously give him permission. God is always at work. However, our participation, and this is kind of maybe go with a little bit of what you were saying, our participation in the eternal plan is essential and it's reflected in its goal that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And so um, predestination it is a scary word that means he determined beforehand. He determined, as in God determined or knew the destiny beforehand. So he already knows, the foreknowledge is that God knows everything that's going to occur. And so God knows who is going to accept. God knows who's going to reject. 
God knows when someone is going to die. God knows what earthquakes are going to hit, the, you know, hit. God knows when a volcano is going to, he knows. His foreknowledge uh, allows and affords for him to know all things. And, and that's been since the beginning of the, the earth. Yeah. Sure. So his, his foreknowledge is tied to uh, the, the term predestination, which is tied to the term election, which is tied to the term called. And like I said, I'm going to hopefully unpack. Uh, there are probably 13 or 14 portions of the New Testament that talk about this specific topic. And so hopefully I'm going to tie all of them together so that you guys can read them. And then if you have more questions about them, you guys can come back and hopefully I can unpack it to a greater extent. But the, the process that God does with our cooperation is not something that he just does to us. That is the reason for God's plan. He adopts us into his family for the purpose of making us like his son, similar to him in the perfection of his humanity. So look, though, at verse 31, because Paul begins to conclude this section, and he says that what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If all we had were the first few chapters of the book of Romans, we would believe that God was against us. If all we had was chapters 1, 2, and 3, if we didn't have anything else, but Paul is now showing us at great lengths that God went to save us from his wrath, but then equip us for victory over sin and death. And now he's saying, who can doubt God? Who could doubt God now? Most all men say or think that God is for them. Uh, there's a statistic that was just released from uh, the Christian uh, Research Institute here in America. And the statistics that were just released that said 90% of Americans, 90% of Americans believe that God is for them. They also said that 86% of Americans believe that God is for all people. So then they asked the same group of people, and they said, do you believe God is for terrorists? That number significantly dropped. Nearly 40% did that number drop. But then they asked the question, do you know that terrorists believe that God is for them, even as they commit horrible, horrible and heinous crimes? To which those same people had a very, very slim understanding of what other religions teach outside of our culture. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit guarded the statement here when he used the word if. So we may know that just because a man thinks God is with him doesn't make it so. Doesn't make it so. God is only for us if we are reconciled to him through his son. Despite the suffering that Christians will face in our culture, uh, if God is for us, what does it matter if other people are against us? What does it matter? It doesn't. One person plus God makes an unconquerable majority. Just one. If there were just one, and we certainly can be deceived into thinking that God is for us when actually he is not, as do what we were talking about earlier with cultists. Cultists believe that. Uh, but yet it cannot be denied that those who are in Christ Jesus, that God is for them. It can't be. 
which is why there's evidence from God in verse 32 where he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if the father already gave his ultimate gift, how can we think that he won't give us smaller gifts? How, how, how could we think that? And so then he said at the very end, he said, who shall bring any charge in verse 33 against God's elect? And there's another word that ties in with predestination. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or nor rulers or things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we are secure from every charge that comes against us as believers. And if we are declared not guilty by the highest judge, who could bring additional charges against us? Like we are secure from all condemnation, Paul says here at the end. And if Jesus is our advocate promoting our benefit, then who could condemn us? Who is able to? Nobody. No matter what your circumstance, no matter the sufferings of this present time, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that makes us conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Christ, Paul said. So then it begs to question as we close, how is the Christian more than a conqueror? How is the Christian more than a conqueror? Well, the Christian is more than a conqueror because he overcomes with a greater power, the power of Jesus Christ. He, he is more than a conqueror because he overcomes with a greater motive. Well, what's the greater motive? The glorification of Jesus Christ. He overcomes with a greater victory, meaning that he loses nothing even in the midst of battle. Why? Because we've already overcome through the blood of Jesus Christ. He overcomes with a greater love. Why? Because we're able to conquer enemies and convert persecutors with the fruit of the Spirit. By the power of Christ within us. And so tonight, from this point forward, from the moment of your salvation, nothing which appeared to be good or nothing which appeared to be evil could separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing at all. And for us, that should bring great hope into this life. Great hope for us. And so I want to end with no questions tonight. I want us to, to leave here uh, with a lot to chew through. A lot to think about. A lot to, to reflect upon about how great is God's love for each and every one of us as his children. And when we walk away tonight, have discussion with your spouse, with your children, with your friends um, ab about the fact that we don't have to live condemned any longer. We don't, we don't have to walk in shame and guilt um, any longer because of our past life. 
It doesn't mean we just flippantly live our life, but it means that we are able to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to a greater and deeper understanding of our relationship with Christ so that we can live to a, a fuller capacity and find, uh, find peace and joy and, and patience and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control in, in walking with the Spirit.